First Chronicles chapter 22, First Chronicles chapter 22. Last week we looked at the first five verses and really there at the close of verse 5 there's that emphasis David makes preparation and again David prepared. Tonight I am proverbially asking you to drink from a hot fire hydrant. <laughs> In other words, I'm going to probably do like information overload. So you're just going to have to say preacher enough at some point. So I need you to hear this. I don't have this all figured out. I'm far from having all of this figured out. I can, I can tell you this. There's two things I want you to learn tonight and if I don't get that out, I will, I will have failed you. There are two things that you need to know. And we're going to talk about a number of things, but primarily there are two things that you need to learn from this text tonight. Number one, the construction, the preparation and construction of the temple is a mountaintop momentous moment in Old Testament history. You've got to get that. And that's why I'm really dragging my feet. There's a lot of information to process. But I, number one, you've got to see, if you're interested in learning the Bible, there are some key points. For example, God speaking to uh, Abraham uh, the Abrahamic covenant. That is a major uh, principle. God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. There are some major moments in Old Testament history. This is one of them. And you've got to learn that. If you want to understand. Because think about the transition from the tabernacle to the temple. The construction of the temple. This will be the primary worship center for 300 years. Um that temple, this temple, Solomon's temple, will be destroyed. Uh, Ezra and Zerubbabel will come and rebuild the temple, but the second temple will be nothing like the first temple. And then that temple will remain until Christ actually walks among that second temple. You remember he drove the money changers uh, out of the temple. That will be that second temple that is built. And then in AD 70, city of Jerusalem is sacked again the temple destroyed again and now there is no temple, it's gone and I'm of the opinion there's going to be a temple rebuilt in the future um, but then ultimately and I can't help it, I've been in this all week and you get all the way to Revelation there's a temple mentioned there until you get to the new heaven and the new earth when you get to the new heaven and the new earth Revelation 21 says there is no temple because the Lamb is the temple. So I, this is significant. This is new to, to uh, Jewish history, but this is a significant event. And that's a major thing you've got to learn. Number two, David is fully committed to doing everything he can do to have the temple built. David's level of commitment is 110%. Every bit. And 
he wants Solomon, his son's commitment to be the same. Fully committed to getting this done. And in fact, and I'm still reading and learning because I, I you know, I'm trying to learn with you on this. It appears as though David and Solomon would co-reign, reign together as regents together for about two years or so. As David's health declines and as Solomon begins to take the reins of the nation of Israel. Some of that, and I'm telling you this is information overload, them co-reigning is probably in direct response to another attempt by one of David's sons to usurp the throne. Adonijah, another one of David's sons, will up and decide he wants to be king when David is dead, not Solomon. So that rebellion has to be squashed. We'll talk about that more in the future. It's primarily in 1 Kings. But David's intent is to do everything he can humanly do to prepare for the temple and then insist that his son shares the same level of commitment for the construction of the temple. And Solomon will begin construction within the first few years of his reign. So all of this gathering of men and material, uh, workforce, getting the support of the leaders of, uh, leaders of Israel, all of that is, is imperative that it gets done during David's time. So let me read my text. And I apologize to you tonight. I, there's a lot. There's just a lot to, to hear, to read, and learn. First Chronicles 22, verse 6. This is David. And he, David, called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for Yahweh God, for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great war. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, sons shall be born to thee. Now this is David repeating what God said to him. Behold, a son shall be born to thee. God speaking to David about David and his son. Who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son. Now this is God still speaking. He shall be my son. David, he might be your son, but he's my son. But it's not just about Solomon here. And I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. So you understand God speaking to David about Solomon, but it's not limited to Solomon. It's actually pointing to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because it says at the close of verse 10, I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Solomon's dead. So it's not just about him. Now David speaks to his son. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee and prosper thou and build the house of the Lord thy God as he has said of thee. If you want something to think about later tonight, do some digging around verse 11 right there. God's already said you're going to do this. David tells his son, you go do what God's already said you're going to do. You still on that one for a little while tonight and text me later, all right? Verse 12, only Yahweh, only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that, they, that thou mayest keep the law of the Lord thy God. Then, then Solomon, and only then, shalt thou prosper if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Dread not, nor be dismayed. Now behold, in my trouble, or really to, with great trouble, it, with a tremendous amount of personal exertion, I have prepared for the house of the Lord in a hundred thousand talents of gold, and a thousand thousand talents, that's one million, talents of silver, and of brass and iron, it can't even be measured without weight, for it is in abundance. Timber also and stone have I prepared, and Solomon, if you want to add to it, you can just put a little more in the pot too. At the close of verse number 14, and thou mayest add there too. Moreover, there are workmen with thee in abundance, hewers and workers of stone and timber, and manner, and all manner of cunning men of every manner of work of the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron. There is no none. Here's a key thought. Arise. Boy, get up and get to work. That's why I wanted to sing toiling on, toiling on, to the work, to the work. That's what David's telling Solomon. Arise and be doing. Arise therefore and be doing and the Lord be with thee. Now I'm just going to stop because I can tell you we're not going to get that far tonight anyway. Alright? I want you to think about the king's commitment. The king's commitment. And by that I mean David's commitment and preparation leaning heavily upon Solomon as a father to a son that he shares that same commitment when he will be king as well. Now, I'm going to begin with this and I hope I don't lose you. I want you to imagine that you walk through a hall and there's a doorway. Open the door. When you open the door, there's a round room. And every few feet in that round room, there's another door. So you go up and you open that door and there's a hallway. You walk through that hallway, there's a door. You open that door and there's another round room full of doors. To some degree, that's what I have felt like this week as I've been studying for this. I go into one room and there's all these different subjects and ideas. And I follow one 
and then it opens up to something else. So I come back, go through the next door, and then it opens up to something else. There is, in this right here, a tremendous amount of history and information that is incredibly important for any number of reasons. Uh, if you were an Old Testament Jew, this was vital information. As I said to you, this is not recorded anywhere else. There's no duplicate of this in inspired scripture. For us today, as we think about the temple and, and what all it meant to Old Testament Israel and then to the New Testament and, and now, even just now, I want you to go with me just briefly into some of those round rooms and think. If I don't do anything else tonight, I want you to think. I want to challenge you to think about some of these things. One of those would be to give some thought to the original audience of the book of Chronicles. Now, my teacher would say, put your thinking caps on. Who was the original recipients of the book of Chronicles? It is important that we know not just what is written, but who it was written to. And you may not immediately know that, and that's okay. The Chronicles were written to the Jews who were returning from the exile. After David and Solomon prepare, and really Solomon, as Solomon builds the temple, that'll be the place of worship for some 300 years. But if you know your Old Testament, what happens? Israel splits between ten and two nations tribes to the north, they're led into bondage 150 years or so later. The, the southern tribes are run over by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He seizes control of Jerusalem, destroys the temples, takes the gold, plunders the gold from it, and takes away the remaining Jews, takes them away and disperses them. It's called the dispersia or the exile. Okay? Chronicles is written to those Jews who are now returning from the exile. They, some of them have never seen Jerusalem. They were born in bondage. Uh, some of them are older and they were carried away captive, but, but under King Cyrus, they are allowed to return. And that's significant because they needed those exiles, those returning exiles from Babylon who are now coming back. They needed to be reminded that God is not done with them. When they come to Jerusalem, it's, it's in shambles. The temple's destroyed. The wall around the city's been broken down. There's where we get Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what they do. And these original audience, this original audience, the original readers of the Chronicles, they needed to hear a word that God had not. They had left God. God had not left them. <laughs> that, that their unfaithfulness had led to this, yet 
God had brought them back and God wasn't done with them. This is why we have the retelling of the Davidic covenant found right here, verses 6 through 10. Those returning exiles needed to hear because there was no Jewish king sitting on the throne. They needed to hear, but but God made a promise. And part of that promise is that there will be one of the lineage of David who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so that pointed them towards the promised Messiah who was to come. They needed that. Their holy city, their place of worship, destroyed. God is faithful even when we are not. Even when His Old Testament people Israel were not. And He is going to fulfill the promise that He made to them. And they needed to hear that. Now that's just one of the round rooms that we went into. But there's some richness there, right? I mean, there's something to be thinking about there. If I may also, there is a measure of, I don't know what the right word is. It's not guilt. Reality maybe. That Ezra, Zerubbabel, will rebuild the temple. But the temple that gets rebuilt will just be a shadow of Solomon's temple. A broken fragment, really. And it is to remind the people of the cost of disobedience to God. This listing here that is found, for example, in verse 14 of the gold, and I want to take that literally, though some don't, I want to take that literally there. The gold and silver that David had amassed to donate for the construction of the temple that rebuilt temple, the temple that Ezra's rubble would rebuild paled in comparison to that. And so there's that information here as well that reminds them of the cost of disobedience to God. Yes, the temple would be rebuilt, and it was an amazing story. It was great work that they got done. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah with the wall. It's fantastic. Uh, brave, courageous work. But look what disobedience to God cost you. This new temple is nothing, nothing compared to the temple of Solomon. And there is uh, the information on the temple itself, and this is where I got bogged down a little bit, reading and studying on the temple itself and how it's built and what it looks like. And I'm trying to prayerfully decide how much of that we're going to get into uh, when, when we make our way to Kings, First uh, uh, Kings. The charge given to Solomon here uh, is rich. So there's just a lot to process. And so uh, I hope that I've piqued your interest some about the importance of this in different ways. Notice with me first, and we'll just go as far as we go. I told one of you guys just wave a white flag when you've had all you can take tonight. Notice with me first a promise explained or restated. A promise in verses 6 through 10. 
there's this promise explained and restated. There, David gets Solomon. Now, depending on which commentator you read after, David is, I, I'm sorry, Solomon is either between 18 and 20 years of age, or he's between 20 and 30 years of age. I don't know which is right. All the Bible specifically says is the words of David, he's young. He's young. I would lean towards a younger age of Solomon. David reigns for 40 years. Solomon is born about halfway through David's reign. Okay? So Solomon is a young guy. Now just think, just think. 20, 22, 25, and you're getting ready to be a world leader in charge of overseeing, governing the biggest, most expensive construction in the history of the world. That's a lot on a man. You're getting ready to take over God's covenant people. Getting ready to lead the nation of Israel. That's a lot on a young guy. And David begins, he's a grown man, but he's still young, as it were, bringing him not on his knee, but putting Solomon at his side and said, Solomon, I've got to make something clear to you. I need to explain the promise, the covenant that God made with me because you are directly related to Verse 6, he calls Solomon his son and he charges him to build a house. Get at it. Build for the Lord God of Israel. And then, you see in verse number 7, David says, it was in my heart. That, uh, Solomon, you know, it was in my heart. I wanted to build a house. Verse 8, but the word of the Lord came to me and said, no, I've, I've been a man of war. And God won't allow me one who has shed blood. And there's something to be thought in that, that God is a God of peace. Yes, when it is incumbent upon the Almighty to exercise wrath, He does so. But God is also a God of peace. He yearns for peace. He created a peaceful society. We're the ones that messed that up. And so God would have His temple to be a place of peace built by someone who not shed so much blood. There's something to be thinking about the person of God in that. In verse number 9, Behold, a son shall be born to thee. God again speaking to and about David. He shall be a man of rest. I tried to emphasize this when I was reading it, but if you're somebody who writes in your Bible or marks, Notice there's like five words that are used here to make reference to the idea of peace, tranquility, safety, really. Verse 9, A son shall be born unto thee who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. I told you last week, what does the name Solomon mean? Yeah, peaceful. Peace. Peaceful. His name shall be peaceful, and I will give him peace. There is, with the, and quietness, that's the filth of, of those. There is no doubt in the mind of the author 
a play on words here. Remember that original audience who've been drug off captive into Babylon and now they've been brought back? And there's a promise of peace? They've never known peace, but there's a promise of it. But not till the true king comes. <laughs> Solomon, he's just a shadow of the, of the truth. And it says that uh, now shall call it his name shall be Solomon, peaceful, and I will give him peace and quietness unto Israel in all his days. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. Verse 10. That Davidic covenant there ties Solomon to the throne and the construction of the temple, but it goes beyond that. And it goes points their minds to the coming Messiah. Coming Messiah. Verse in number 11 and 12, there's a call to obedience. We've seen a promise explained. Now see a call to obedience. This is really David and Solomon in a private setting. Later on, chapter 28 in Chronicles, we'll see a public charge given to Solomon. But here it is a private call to obedience. Verse 11 and 12, Now my son, Yahweh be with thee and prosper you. Build the house of the Lord thy God. And as I mentioned earlier, verse 11, the close of it, as he has said of thee. That's one of those you're going to scratch your mind on. God has said it, so will it happen? If God has said this is going to happen, will it happen? Yeah, you count on it. Yet David is saying, go do what God has said you're going to do. Only, verse 12, Yahweh give thee wisdom and understanding. Now if you will remember, this is not, you know, uh, hopefully not a spoiler, but if you will remember, after David dies, Solomon ascends the throne fully. God asked Solomon, name it, anything you want, ask for it, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, give me wisdom and an understanding heart that I may rule your people well. The task in front of him is phenomenally great. Huge. Young guy taking over. He wisely asked God for wisdom. David here is saying to his son in verse 12, you're going to need wisdom. May God give you wisdom and understanding. But not only that, Solomon, you need to commit yourself. Close of verse 12, to keep the law of the Lord. It was required of Israeli kings that they would obtain a copy of of what we would call the Pentateuch or the first five books of the, of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was required of kings that they obtain a copy of that and literally handwrite a copy of it themselves so that they always had the law in front of them so they knew what God demanded of them. And they knew how they should lead the people in proper worship of the one true God. And David is saying to Solomon, Solomon, you need wisdom, you need understanding, but 
don't you dare turn your back on God. Unfortunately, what will happen? Saul. He loves. Now, don't get mad at me, please. I love everybody. In King James language, but Solomon loved many strange women. To which I always say, is there any other kind? But men are worse. How about that? <laughs> but that meant foreign women. That's what it meant. That's just old English. Someday, uh, David's exhortation, Solomon, you need wisdom, you need understanding, but at the same time, you need a reverential fear of God. I've got it right here in my notes. Um, Proverbs 29, verse 2. I'm going to turn over there real quick. And here's my point in this. Proverbs 29, 2. Y'all can hear a little Proverbs bleeding through, I think, in my sermons. Proverbs 29, 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. The same counsel, and the point I'm trying to get at is this, the same counsel that David gave to Solomon would be beneficial to any nation. Any nation. Including our nation. That our leaders would be filled with godly wisdom and understanding and commit themselves to obeying the law of God. That would be nothing but beneficial for any nation, including ours. Unfortunately, that's not what we have. Generally, there are, I believe, some good godly men and women in places of authority, but when the righteous are in authority, People rejoice, but when the wicked, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. We're living that. But I would also have you notice a condition of blessing. Thirdly, a condition of blessing on verse 13. Then, and I've got that underlined in green in my Bible. Then, and only then, Solomon shalt thou prosper if you take heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which Yahweh God charged Moses with concerning Israel. I don't care if it's King Saul, King David, King Solomon, or any of the others. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, go on down that long and sundry list of, of Jewish kings. Or if it's Queen Elizabeth. It doesn't matter. No leader has any right to expect the blessing of God if they disregard God. And that's exactly what you can hear our president say, God bless the your president say, God bless America. It's emptiness. It's vanity. Right? It's vanity. In fact, it's taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. Because we cannot ask God to bless. America. He cannot ask God to bless America when he disdains the very things of God. i got to get out of that political platform. But when, when there's a transition of leaders, 
and we're talking about what it what what it takes to lead well. It takes wisdom, godly understanding, and, and discretion. But it also takes an understanding of accountability before a holy God, which is so lacking in leaders today. That there is a judgment. These people leading our country today don't give one minute thought. There's a judgment to come. They're going to give an account. So here, David says, if you want God's blessing, you have to lean in on Him. And you have to obey Him. You can't expect God to bless your life, our life, this country, your family, if we disregard the things of God. You can't expect it. Then I might sprinkle one or two more things and then I'm going to let you be done for I want you to know some encouragement that is given at the close of verse 13. The opening of that, there's a condition. If, if you do this, then God will bless. In the close of verse 13, there is an encouragement that is given. Be strong and of good courage. Dread not, nor be dismayed. If you read that, and as I told you, here's another room one of those round rooms. If you read that, it is incredibly reminiscent of the same language that Moses used with Joshua and that God used with Joshua to lead well. You've got to have a spine, a backbone, you got to have some courage about you. David says, son, you got to be a man. Time to man up. And it's almost verbatim what Moses told Joshua when Moses was fading off the scene. In fact, I've got it written down, so let's just take the time to turn over there. Deuteronomy chapter 31, if you would. And again, if you get into, to some degree, if you get into the mind of the author, there's a purpose behind him retelling this with the details that he retells it for the benefit of the original audience. They need to hear. They need to be reminded of God's transition of power and how God is not done with him. Deuteronomy chapter 31 Verse, just start verse 6. This is Moses speaking to Joshua. You need to look back there and, and see that. At the beginning of the chapter, Moses spake these words unto all Israel. He begins to speak to Joshua. Verse 6 Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. Uh, for the Lord thy God, it, he it is that, got, that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of a good courage. For thou must go with this people. This is what David is saying to Solomon. This is a retelling of this to reinforce to the original audience God's transition of power yet not done with him. Verse 23 of this same chapter, Deuteronomy 31. 
verse 23, And he, that is Moses, gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel in the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee. If you are so inclined, turn over just a page or two to Joshua chapter 1, and you will see God Himself speaking. Joshua 1, verse 1, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua. So this is God speaking. Verse 6, Joshua 1, verse 6. Well, verse 5, There shall not be any man able to stand before thee all the days that I like, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee, and will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people thou shalt provide for an inheritance. Verse 7, only be strong. Verse 9, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. And there is a, a reason and a purpose, and I'm sorry for the redundancy, but there's an intentional redundancy in the author of retelling this. These uh, returning exiles needed to be schooled again. Some of them grew up in captivity. They needed to be schooled in the Word of God. And they needed to be reminded of, of the charge given to Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. There is absolutely uh, an intentional contrast that is made there. Intentional contrast that is made there. And then I'm going to close with this. We'll pick back up here, okay? Because this is just... I've been holding on to this for a couple weeks. I can't hold on to it no more. We've seen a promise explained, a call to obedience, a condition of blessing. We've seen an encouragement given. But notice now with me out of verse 14, an account of incredible generosity. An account of incredible generosity. Verse 14. Now behold, in my trouble I have prepared for the house of Yahweh a hundred thousand talents of gold and a thousand thousand talents of silver and brass and iron we can't even keep up with how much it is. Stones you can't even keep up with. Now, remember, David has fought numerous nearby nations throughout his kingship. And almost always God gave him victory. And with the victory come the spoils. And so they laid siege to all kinds of gold and silver. And the king's treasury, his money, finances that David had amassed. And I don't think so much even, even so much as personal, though he was king and as king he owned everything, right? But I don't think even so much like his personal wealth, but what he had amassed and set aside for the nation, the dollar figure of which is astounding. Astounding. 
Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the new home of the Falcons, cost roughly 